we come to a place in our service now where we begin to open up the Word of God and look at Ephesians chapter 5 in our series that we've been continuing verse by verse through this powerful chapter here together. Uh, We have titled this chapter, Imitate, Imitate. Everybody say imitate. 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 We're all learning how to be better imitators of the Lord himself. And that's not just a good idea that we have at church, uh, but that comes directly from the word of God. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Let's look at verse 1 together. In fact, how about we read this out loud together right now. Ready? One, two, three. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Right? Beloved children, that's who we are. We're first children of God for those who have put their faith in Jesus, for those who have come to the place in their life where they said, you know what, I can't do this on my own, I can't save myself, I need to be saved and set free, and Jesus is the only one who can do it. For those people who have put their yes on the table by faith to him, what God does is he adopts us then into his family, so we're not called slaves, we're called beloved children. We're not called orphans, we're called children. And we have to continue to preach that to our heart and say, you know what? I'm saved and set free and I'm a child of God. I'm a loved child of God. And that changes everything, including our walk. So now we walk as imitators of our loving Father and we imitate his love in us, through us, to us, from us. And that's what we're looking at here in the text this morning And specifically in Ephesians 5.20 is where we last left off. This verse says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So a subtitle for this message would be Imitation by Appreciation. Imitation by Appreciation. We're growing in our gratitude of the Lord. And Jesus modeled this, didn't he? Jesus modeled thanksgiving All, all the time. He was thankful to the Father for what he was doing in and through him. And so the more we become like Jesus, the more we become grateful. I recognized this recently as I was listening to my son, Epaph. He is about four and a half years old, and he just recently learned a new prayer. And he he closes all of his prayers with this little tagline. He'll pray for the food, or he'll pray before he goes to sleep, and then he'll close his prayer by saying, and give us a great day, a safe day, and make us more like you. And And that's his heart, right? Lord, make us more. And I just... At first, it was just like, oh, that's a cute moment, but then I realized that's theologically correct. Jesus, make us more like you because we're imitators and and we're imitating God. And I recognize that for, for some people, hear me, church, for some people, we, me and you, will be the only Bible that people read, will be the only Jesus people see, will be our imitating of him. So let's make sure we do it and do it well. Because people are watching, 90% of our city doesn't go to a church, so how are they going to see them? How are they going to hear them? It's going to be us being imitators. So this week we're looking at imitation by appreciation, giving thanks to God in everything always. So should you give thanks in everything always? Yes. It's Thanksgiving week, amen? We have much to be thankful for, and I want us to look at a story right now in Luke chapter 7, where we can find a woman who recognized this principle and then began living it out. And I think that there's something that you and I might be able to learn from it as well. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Luke 7, 36 through 50. If you're there, say, I'm there. If you're still flipping, say, I'm still flipping. If you're hungry, say, let's eat. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. 
All right, well, Father, right now, as we, as we read your word, as we open up your word, God, I pray that Jesus, you, Lord, would speak to us. Church family, just join me right now and say, Jesus, open my heart. Open our hearts, God. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears that hear. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke 7, 36. We're going to read a bunch of verses here, but put yourself in the story. I believe you'll get something out of it. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. That's just how I heard it, all right? That's just that's how I envisioned him thinking this. Jesus, sinner. Verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon. How about that? Jesus read his thought, amen? Jesus had x-ray vision right into what he was thinking, and Jesus says, I got an answer for that. He said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. And the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she was. Wet my feet with her, her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he who said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want us to really just take this story as a model here today. And I want us to put our magnifying glass on it and see, okay, Lord, what, what can I get from this? What are you showing us in this passage? What are you teaching here? And how can that apply in my own life and in my imitating? Let's go ahead and pick it up in verse 36. Let's lean into what is happening here. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. This is a powerful moment right here because we see a Pharisee. Now, maybe you'd ask this question, really, what is a Pharisee? Well, the Pharisees were a, a group of Jewish men and individuals, either collectively or individually. 98 times in the New Testament, we see the Pharisees on display. They were an influential group within Judaism, especially in the time of Christ and in the early church. 
They were known for their emphasis on personal piety. The, the word Pharisee, by definition in the Hebrew language, is someone who's set apart, separated from the rest, dispatched in its own Work. That's where the word Pharisee comes from. Their acceptance of the oral tradition and the addition of the written law, as well as their ceremonial cleansing and rituals, they embraced all of those and tried to live and model each one of those laws. The Pharisees were the religious elite of their day. They would hang out together, they would walk together, they would study the Torah together. They would spend time memorizing scripture together, praying together, tithing together, spending lots of time in the synagogue. Moralistically speaking, the Pharisees were at the top of the charts. The issue that the Pharisees found themselves in, though, is that while they were spending all this time with God, Jesus himself was right in front of them, and they couldn't see him. That while they were working so hard to earn God's favor, God's favor through Jesus is right there in front of them and they just continue to miss them. It would almost be like they knew the word of God, but they missed the God of the word. Where we can get so into doing things that it just becomes a checkbox and we miss why we're doing them and who it's for and who we love and the relationship we have as children of God. So now the, the, we see this Pharisee, right? He's before us. The scripture says that his name is Simon. And he does this powerful act. He asks Jesus to eat with him. Can I just share with you that this is a powerful thing that we can learn from? I want to encourage you to model this type of activity, especially this season where it's the holiday season. Amen. Thanksgiving is right around the corner. What if you learned from the Pharisee in this case and you asked somebody to eat with you? He would maybe do it. She would maybe do it. What if you said, you know what? I'm going to take advantage of my table, whether it's a breakfast, a lunch, or a dinner, and said, you know what? I'm going to ask somebody to come in and eat. He even got Jesus to stop what he was doing and go in and eat. And I love what Jesus does. He models that I don't have favorites. I'll go eat with a Pharisee. I'll go eat with a, somebody who has leprosy as long as they invite me in. And I really think we're living in a day where we need to see this happen more. Many years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King had this powerful and convicting quote. He said that the most segregated day in America is Sundays at 11 o'clock. What he meant by that is too often churches are just really one color or one type of background, or look the same, or feel the same, or sound the same. And there's a lot of segregation that happens in those times. And I really believe, praise God, we're making some growth in this area, though we are far from arrived. But I would even go as far as to say this, and I've heard this recently from different scholars and pastors, that the most segregated time in America is no longer Sunday at 11. It's Monday at 5, around the dinner table. That It's, it's in the evening time at the dinner table that we only look like each other. And what if we utilize that time to invite somebody around the table to have real discussion, real freedom, that doesn't look like you, may have come from a different background, may have a different race or ethnicity, may, may have a different type of bank account and say, I'm gonna invite you in. And let's have a real discussion without being weird. I, be, I believe if we'd start doing that more, that God will be glorified and people will be set free. And I want to challenge you this year. 
from now until the, the rest of 2019 to just do that once, to just say, you know what? I'm gonna open up my table one time to invite somebody that's never been there before. I'm gonna cook. I'm gonna bring something in. I'm gonna order pizza. I'm gonna do something. Amen? Will you receive the challenge? All right, for all four of you guys and me. All right, we'll do it. All right? So the Pharisee asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went. He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. I love how Jesus showed up. And let me go ahead and give you the other principle. If you get invited, show up. Jesus got invited in. And he said, guess what? I'm not making an excuse. If anybody had reason to say, I'm too busy. I have too much going on. I have too much ministry to do. It's Jesus. But he says, I'll stop what I'm doing to come in and eat with you. Even if his motivation was off, and we'll, we'll find here soon that it was. And so Jesus comes into the room, and he reclines at table. I, I love this verse right here. It gives us some picture and some imagery of what Jesus was doing there in the house. He shows up, and he reclines at table. Now, I want to give you some visual as to what this possibly would have looked like. Uh, in this day, in this time, in this culture, there wasn't chairs, there wasn't fancy chairs you would sit down at, at the table. In fact, what people would do is they would have almost like a mattress-type bed, and they would each get one as they walked into the house. They would lean it up against the table, and then they would lean on it at the table and kick their feet back. And so they would lean in and have a discussion with one another. Like, for example, they'd be like, hey, Jimmy, so how was church? And you would say, man, the sermon was great. No, no. <laughs> just playing, right? You'd be like, you know, you'd lean in and just say, hey, so what'd you think of the game last night? And there would be real discussion around the table. That, that, that's what it meant to recline at table, to lean in, look at each other's eyes and talk. And one of the reasons why that was the practice of the day is because the feet oftentimes were so unclean. Right? There wasn't Air Jordans. There was Air Jesuses. Right? These were these sandals that weren't built tough. Right? They were just as much as you could get. You know, you'd walk in these sandals. The roads were dirty and dusty and muddy. There was all types of dust all around. So people didn't drive. People walked to places. Come walk with me. Jesus would say, come follow me. That meant we're going to do a lot of walking. Right? And so when you came into a place of dinner or a place of a meal, you would first start by washing your feet. But we notice here in this text, it says that the Pharisee didn't wash his feet. The custom of that time before you reclined at the table is that the, the host, the, the place uh, where, that invited the guest would stop and say, okay, guest, I'm gonna wash your feet for you. You're my guest. I'm gonna honor you. Or he would give him his own personal bowl of water to wash his own feet, but this did not happen here. And so I want you to see Jesus reclining at table, feet up, leaning in, listening to the Pharisee. Do you see it? Can you picture it? Are you there? Are you in the room? You could actually be in the room because at this, at this time, doors would have been opened, windows would have been opened, and it was such an important time where a Pharisee invited somebody to eat that people could actually come inside the house and stand behind the table and observe. I wanna hear what the Pharisees are talking about. It was a moment where you could listen in on the dialogue. It was an honor to be invited to the table. You couldn't sit down or lean in, but you could listen. And so I want you to imagine these guests around the table, the Pharisees and his crew, Jesus right there, and then what happens next is beautiful. Let's look at verse 37. The scripture says, and behold, say that with me, and behold. Come on, give me a little bit more energy. And behold. 
Look at the person next to you and say, it's about to happen. It's about to happen. Here's, here's, why, here's why I do that. Here's why I do that. Because all the commentaries that I was reading on this text said, when you see the phrase, behold, stop, that this is a word that's there to shock you. It could have just said, and a woman of the city. It says, and behold. In other words, hold up. Slam on the brakes. What just happened? Behold. Hold up. A woman steps in the room. Just the fact that a woman is in there. In this day and this time in a Pharisee's house would have been foreign. It was uncommon for women to join in at the meals in this type of a rab- rabbinic setting. But a woman, but not just a woman, come on somebody, a woman of the city. She's not a woman of the church. She's not a woman of the synagogue. She's a woman of the city. This is a woman with a past. This is a woman with a reputation. This is a woman who has been known in the street. This is a woman who has her reputation found in the city of the common people. She is a woman who is also known as a sinner. She was a woman of the the city who was a sinner. Now, this phrase, who was a sinner, oftentimes in the New Testament, when you see this phrase, was a sinner, it was usually followed by and was a prostitute. So, Most commentators and scholars believe that this was a woman from the city whose profession was adultery. She was a professional prostitute. And she says, I'm going to meet Jesus. This is a powerful moment. She learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. I'm I'm a visual reader. I'm an imaginer, right? I just imagine this woman that at some point within Luke chapter one all the way through chapter seven, there was a moment where Jesus must have delivered a powerful message. Up to this point, he's preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's done a whole bunch of different miracles at this point in the game. She may have been in the crowd. She might have been a part of the 5,000. And she may have heard Jesus say, all come to me and find rest. Or maybe she heard Jesus say, everybody who comes to me and repents of their sin and follows me will be saved. Or maybe she heard Jesus say, come to me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light and everything in her story was heavy and broken. And maybe she, 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 she had contact with Jesus of some sort and she just never got to thank him. And she learns, she hears, church family, listen to me, she learns Jesus is coming to town. He's going to be passing through. We heard the Pharisee said he's coming over to his house. He's going to eat with him. And she learned about it. And here's what I really think she did. I think she gathered all of her friends from the city who are sinners. And she said, guess what? I'm going. And they probably said, behold. No, you're not. (laughs) Behold, you crazy. And she goes, I'm going. I'm going into Simon the Pharisee's house. See, people could come in and observe the dinner table, and they could lean in and listen to what was happening, the dialogue about the word of God. But she's thinking, I'm going to go in. Prostitutes and sinful people wouldn't go in on these meals. You know why? Because the people at the table were talking about them. 
I'm not going in to be talked about. I'm not going, I'm, I'm dirty, I'm sinful. I'm not going into a Pharisee's house. This is the worst clashed combo right here. And she goes, I'm going. Walk church, she says, I'm going. I'm stepping in. I heard Jesus is coming. He's gonna be there on time. I'm gonna go to the table and not only am I going, she's telling her friends, not only am I gonna go, guess what? I'm gonna bring my grandma's alabaster flask with ointment in it. I added the grandma part, all right? She, she, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, maybe you're not too familiar with an alabaster flask of ointment. I, I wasn't until a study in this passage. Um, this would be a picture of an alabaster flask. The, the phrase alabaster was used in this day. It was to describe an expensive kind of marble that you could only find by digging and excavating in Egypt. So you'd have to go to Egypt, you'd have to pay money to begin an excavating journey, you would find this specific stone called alabaster, you would take it to a potter, and then he would begin to make this stone into a very expensive flask or vase. And then what you would do with this vase, it was like a trophy, it was a treasure. Then you would put the most expensive perfume or oil in it, and you would only use on special occasions, and the perfume or oil you would use would be an ointment that had such a strong aroma, it would fill the whole house. This was a powerful thing to have. This was her most precious gift in her home. Other translations have described the alabaster flask could hold uh, ointments and oils that were thousands of dollars in our day. She says, hey, I got one gift to bring. I got my alabaster flask. I'm going, she tells her friends, I'm going. And when I show up, I'm gonna anoint Jesus and I'm gonna anoint his hair and I'm gonna give him the the worship that he deserves. I'm gonna thank him for all he has done for me. R. Kent Hughes says that she was there because of gratitude. Why was this sinful woman of the city there? Let me tell you why. She was there because of gratitude. And let me go ahead and remind you, in case you have a Pharisaic type mind here today, that she represents all of us. Don't get it twisted into where you're looking at this like, hmm, you're looking at yourself. Or are you seeing yourself on the other side of the table? We see her walk into the room. Verse 38 says that she's standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. What a powerful moment of praise, worship, and honor. I, I see this moment right here as a very real moment in time. She, she must have had this thought, this will, this will be my moment. Even if I have to go in a Pharisee's house, even if they all look at me like I'm crazy, Even if they all tell me I have to leave, guess what? I'm not in there for them. I'm in there for him. Excuse me, Pharisee. I'm not here for you. I'm here for him. Excuse me. I'm I'm not really concerned about your opinions at this point. I'm not really concerned about your shade at this point. I'm not really concerned about your dislike or unlike of me. I'm here for him. That's why I'm here. I'm here to meet with Jesus. And I'll tell you what, friends, you never quite know how you're going to act until you're in the moment. Right? Like, I bet you she told her friends, like, when I go, watch, I'm going to go. You guys can watch me from the window. I'm going. 
I'm walking in. I'm going to go straight in. I'm going to go straight up to Jesus. I'm going to thank him. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to present my alabaster flask of oil. Then I'm going to present him with this ointment on his hair as a symbol of anointing and praise and worship. It's going to be glorious. And everything changes. Can you see her? She walks into the room. Oh, man, this is happening. I, I had a moment recently like this, you guys, if I can be transparent with you. Uh, a brother here in our church, John Churchill, who works with the Army ROTC at UNLV, he had a special occasion where he invited myself and Rick Strasser of the FCA to join him uh, on a crazy adventure of jumping out of a plane, all right, to, to do a skydive with the Army ROTC Golden Knights. And it was an awesome opportunity, and I decided to take it, okay? And I remember being in the orientation and there was one of the, 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 the parachuter jumpers who was giving this discourse. And he said, hey, listen, it's going to be crazy and it's going to be awesome. But if you just trust me, you're going to be all right. He goes, here's what you got to know. You got to hold on to the harness. When you get up there, the door's going to open. Just grab the harness. I'll do the rest of the work. Just trust me. But make sure you grab on and then we're going to jump out. And we all said, well, that's easy. And he goes, he goes I know it sounds easy but you never know how you're going to act until that door opens. <laughs> and at that point, I said, you know, this shouldn't be too difficult. And I'll even show you this picture that I found. They, they captured a picture of me. There was the guy who was outside of the plane. Video. I need to find the video. The, listen, I don't have my hand on the harness. <laughs> because that door opened, and Rick was already gone. And he said, all right, step up, step up. And I stepped up. And he's like, grab the harness. And I just stood there. He was like, grab it, grab it, grab it. And then all of a sudden I'm leaning <laughs> and I grab that thing. And I was flying and it was a crazy moment. And I was like, how did I miss the one instruction? I just didn't even know how to act because I, <laughs> I started going backwards. He was pushing me forwards. And then I grabbed a hold of that thing quick when I was in, in the air. And... And, and praise the Lord, the, the, the professional guy that I was strapped to, he, he directed everything and was amazing. And there's, there's probably a sermon inside that, just jump and trust God, right? He'll do the rest of the work. Just hold on. Just hold on to him, amen? You hold on to him, he'll do everything for you. You just got to stay, stay close, hold on. But I didn't know how to act. I, I, think, I think for her, when, when she walked into the room, right, when she walked into the room, she was like, That's Jesus. I mean, let's look at this text together. I just want you to see it. Verse 38, standing behind him. Here's Jesus. He's leaning in at the table. He's talking to the Pharisees. And here this woman comes in. She just stands right behind Jesus. Everybody's looking at her. It's one of those bum, bum, bum moments. And what happens? She just starts weeping. It was that the emotional dam had burst, and the only thing she could do is respond with weeping and gratitude. Standing behind Jesus' feet, she began weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. This word wet here in the text, she began to wet his feet. This word wet is the Greek word beko. It means rain. The, the word described rain in the Bible, when rain happens, is what describes her, her weeping right here. She, she began to weep, 
and wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. What a, what a, what a powerful picture of humility and praise. The CSB study Bible says, though she said nothing, her tears, her willingness to give the expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' feet were an eloquent testimony of her gratitude to Jesus. Though she had no words at that point, she got into the moment and said, I got nothing. She just broke down when she saw her Savior. She began weeping. She turned her worries into worship and said, I, got, I just need to worship. She began to give thanks by bringing her, her gift. Notice what had happened. She had no intentions to wash Jesus' feet. That should have been done by the Pharisee. But she looked down as she stood behind him and noticed that this Pharisee failed to honor his Savior. So her tears began to run on Jesus' feet. She quickly pulled out her alabaster flask, began anointing Jesus' feet, the dirtiest part of her feet. Then she looked around and she said, I don't even have a, a rag. I don't even have a cloth to clean my Lord's feet. She said, I got my hair though. Have you ever washed someone's hair, feet with, his, with your hair? This is, this is a dishonorable act, especially in this culture. Wait, let, let, let me show it to you. R. Kent Hughes says it like this. He says, this was socially unacceptable because a woman was to loosen her hair only in the presence of her husband. The Talmud says that a woman could be divorced for letting down her hair in the presence of another man. She says, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. I, I, this is my moment. I'm going to worship Jesus anyway. She begins to wipe his feet with her hair. All her past, all her shortcomings, all her failures, all the people that have condemned her, at this moment what she's doing is she's worshiping Jesus with her best gift, her best worship, and even using her hair to do it. The ESV study Bible says her tears are, are tears of both thankfulness and also reverent awe as she senses the presence of God in the person of Jesus. Her act would have been considered improper. Therefore, it took great courage to honor Jesus in this way. MacArthur says that this was a staggering display of honor, rendered to Jesus in the midst of those who sought only to dishonor him. Now, this is a moment, right? This is a behold moment. As everybody's leaning in like, what is happening what, what are the Pharisees going to do? What are the Pharisees going to say? She emptied her alabaster flask. Now there's an aroma in the room. She is weeping uncontrollably. Her tears are landing on the feet of Jesus with puddles. She's, she's kissing his feet and, 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 and cleaning them. And she's anointing his head and, and just giving praise. She's just in the room singing, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. Pharisees, listen, this is what you should be doing. This sinful woman of the city is modeling what the Pharisees missed. They must have gotten too comfortable. They must have gotten so common with Jesus. Hey, come on, Jesus, just go ahead and come on in here. I ain't going to wash your feet. I'm not even going to bring you anything to wash your feet with. I want to question you, and I want to challenge you. Yet she says, I just want to worship you. Where are you at? The quicker you can get to the place of this woman, the more happy you'll be. 
the, the more fulfilled you'll be. Where, where it's less about who's watching and what people are thinking and what people are saying and what, what, your, what your Savior is saying. What he's thinking. Because at this moment, I think he's delighting in the faith of this woman. What happens next is, is really interesting. The text tells us in verse 39, Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, right? He's like, oh my goodness. He sees what's happening. He is disgusted. He said to himself, he, he had a thought. He said it to himself, if this man were a prophet. Now it's funny that he says that because he reveals his heart. Right? He brought him there to really test, is he a prophet or not? Not knowing that Jesus is so much more than a prophet. He's so much more than a teacher. He's the teacher of teachers. He's the capital P prophet of prophets. Right? He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she's a sinner. Right, he's just thinking in his head, what a disgrace. You see, this guy, I knew he wasn't the real deal. If he would have known who she was. I love what Jesus' response is. Let's look at the next verse. It tells us that, that Jesus, right, answering, said to him. He didn't ask Jesus anything. But Jesus right here is saying, I am a prophet. I heard everything you thought. <laughs> Which is scary, Amen. Jesus is like, hey, I got you, bro. Let me, I can answer everything you just thought. And I wonder if Simon was like, oh, he just, he just caught my, my motive. See, because our motives are a big deal, right? Let me go ahead and show it to you out of the text. Proverbs 16.2 says, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. We can justify anything, church. We can justify sin, wickedness, lying. We'll justify till we're blue in the face. But let me tell you something. The Lord weighs the motives. You might as well just acknowledge and own it and just say, yeah, I messed up. I'm sinful. I'm, I blew it. My motive now, though, is to worship. That's what the Lord weighs. The Lord is putting your motive on the scale. What's the scale going to say, good motive or bad motive? Good motive or selfish motive? Godly motive or selfish motive? His praise or my praise? His glory or my glory? What's your motive? Proverbs 21 Verse 2 says the same similar thought. A person may think their own ways are right. You may think your ways are right. It's reality. But the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord is looking past your actions and saying, but what's your heart saying? Which is why Jesus talks to all the people in the Sermon on the Mount and he goes, he goes listen, look, even if you don't commit the act of adultery, but if you did it in your heart, you've done it. Even if you say to that person, I ain't going to touch them because they might hurt me, but if I could, I'd kill them. Jesus says, you've already killed them. Jesus says, I'm looking at your heart. I'm looking at your motives and I'm weighing those things because that's who you really are. And we can get this, this inward cleansing that leads to outward praising. That's what her story communicated. And this Pharisee leans in and he says, if he was really a prophet, he would, he would know that this is a sinner. Just to give you some commentary on the Pharisee, and if you're, a, if you're a Pharisee in the room, because there's a whole lot of Pharisees still in the church, 
A whole lot of Pharisees that think they're better than other people, think they're self-righteous, would love to look around at people and judge rather than just glorify God. Matthew Henry says, the Pharisee, instead of rejoicing in the tokens of the woman's repentance, confined his thoughts to her former bad character. The Pharisee should be the first one praising someone got saved in his house. The Pharisee should be like, yo, everybody come over. The woman of the city just got saved. She's worshiping Jesus now. She's worshiping God. She brought her alabaster flask. My house smells good. Come on. Praise the Lord. Come join us at the table. Come grab some food. Instead, he's like, man, she's a sinner, bro. He's thinking about her past instead of thinking about who she is in Christ. That he, he, he should be rejoicing. This woman just repented. She could have been going to a different place that was sinful. Instead, she goes into his house to worship. But he confines his thoughts to her former and bad character. Craig Rochelle says it like this. The things closest to the heart of God are often most offensive to the Pharisees. The things, the things that God delights over and loves, this is a perfect picture of it. Pharisees tend to just get weird about, uneasy about. They get distracted by it instead of rejoicing in it. R.C. Sproul says it like this. Sometimes we emulate the Pharisees more than we imitate Christ. You would think in some churches, in some spaces of worship, that the text said, therefore, be imitators of Pharisees. It doesn't say that. It says be imitators of God. And let him love people through you. Let him do the work through you. It's not that we shouldn't hold people accountable. The Bible would say that we should have real conversations with real people in a loving context because we love them. And we should be the first to rejoice and have big arms that hug people when people come to know Jesus. We shouldn't think, I don't know about Kanye West. Is he really a... It's not even your place. Why not just rejoice? Why not just get excited? I don't really know, though, you know. Who's, who are you? What if we did that with you? What if we put your thoughts on the screen? Would you be cool with that? Or you would probably run out of here quick. That's all of us. That's me. We need Jesus, amen? Some of y'all are like, I don't know. <laughs> you need to know. Give you one more thought. I'm, I'm kind of ragging on the Pharisees. I need, I'm, I need to watch my heart so I don't be Pharisee-like to the Pharisees. They need Jesus, too. Adrian Rogers, amazing Southern Baptist preacher, once said it like this. He said, have you ever wondered what a church full of Pharisees would be like? One, they would all attend every service. Two, they would all tithe. Three, they would all work in the church. And four, they would all go to hell. Man. They missed the heart of God. If you miss Jesus and check all the other boxes, you missed everything. Jesus Plus, nothing equals everything. Don't add to him. Just trust him. Put your faith in him. Bring your best gift of worship to him. How about we're still talking about the woman with the alabaster flask? We don't even know her name. She just wanted to worship God. Let's make our way to the finish line of this story. We won't have much commentary on it because I feel like it's self-explanatory. Verse 40, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. 
And he answered, say it, teacher. See, I, I really think if he was wise, he would have said, say it, Lord. Or say it, God. Say it, Savior. But he's still this Pharisee who's memorized the whole Old Testament can only see Jesus as a teacher. Until you're able to see Jesus as everything, as the Savior, as the King of Kings, as the one who wrote this book, you'll miss it. Say a teacher, well, verse 41 says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which is thousands of dollars, a whole lot of money. And the other 50. Well, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. He's saying, if you really want to be the judge and you're not, this would be the right way to judge. It's only one judge, and Jesus in this case is saying, it's me. Right? Let's continue reading. Turning toward the woman, I love how Jesus turns toward the woman and he sees the woman and he speaks this word. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? And I want to even ask you that today. Do you see people? Do you see people outside these doors? They will look different than you. We'll talk different than you. We'll act different than you. Think different than you. But do you see them? Because those are people Jesus sees and those are people Jesus invites and says, come sit with me with the Pharisee. Come lean in with me. He sees this woman. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. You brought no gift. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. He says, he says you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. That sounds nice. She anointed his feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, Jesus is very clear. He's acknowledging her sins are many. She's really messed up. But she's not just only messed up, she's, she's also forgiven. She's forgiven. Not by anything she's done, but by who her faith is in. For she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. He spoke to her, your sins are forgiven. That's really what she needed to hear, amen? Amen. I don't judge you for your past sins or your future sins. You are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, he forgives sins? He says, this, this guy's going to claim to forgive sins? Who is this? And he said to the woman, I ain't worried about them. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I, re I really believe saving faith leads to supernatural peace. If you have saving faith in Jesus, big faith in a big God, you'll walk with peace. Because what can touch you? Nothing. What could hurt you? Nobody. Because you're focused on him. You're, 
you have faith, you can go in peace. She probably came into the room so stressed out. How's it going to happen? What's it going to do? Why is it? She left with peace. I love how I hear people. Amen. Amen. I'll clap with you on that. I hear people all the time. Give me a hug after church and say, man, I'm so glad I came to church. I feel like the enemy kept me used. He shot every arrow he could that I wouldn't come today. But man, I'm just so glad I made it. I'm leaving with peace. There's something about when you encounter Christ and encounter his people. It makes a difference in your life, in your kid's life, in your kid's kid's lives. And I want to encourage you with this story today to be thankful, to bring your gift to Jesus, bring your praise to Jesus, turn your problems into praise, turn your worry into worship. And Jesus will meet you right there. He'll invite you into the room and he'll speak to you and say, you are forgiven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.